Last week, John took over for me and um, did a marvelous job. I listened to his message. It was great. And one of the things that he, I mean, he said a lot of great things. But, but let me help you understand this because the world looks at us because we look at the cross of Christ. And to those people, the cross of Christ is foolishness. They can't get their heads around how Jesus dying on the cross is, has made all the difference in our world for us. Some people can't get their brains around it. The other people look at us and go, you believe that malarkey? Let me get this right. Some guy, self-proclaimed to be God, walked on the earth and taught for three years. He was really spectacular, a rabbi. He died because... They thought he was God because he claimed to be God. They killed him. And on the third day, we, we claimed that he was raised from the dead. And, and that because he was raised from the dead, that's going to change our lives. That's foolishness. Until you start to meet people with changed lives. As soon as you bump into somebody who says, you know what? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was confused, but now I have direction. And it all comes back to the cross of Christ and Jesus and the work he did for us. That's what John told us last week. It was awesome. And so this week, we're, we're moving a little bit different. We're going to still kind of stay on the same theme. But as, as you think about the current social and cultural condition of our nation and the spiritual climate around this world... It, you can really get discouraged over the whole thing. You could just go like, where is God and what is he doing and where are we headed? Because we're in, in deep trouble. Matter of fact, I was talking to a guy this week. And he said to me, he said, you know what? When you take a look at our economy, it's going in the toilet. And when you take a look at the people that are presented before us as our next leaders... It's not a choice. I mean, it's like we're, we're in tr- serious trouble. And, he, and he's just like, I don't know how people deal with this. And he says, and by the way, he says, the attitudes of people have changed drastically. Now people are thinking all they want to do is take what they can get, give nothing to anybody else, and tell the rest of the world where they can go. That's, that's his view on life. And... and He feels powerless to make any changes. He feels like he can't speak to the issues because he's not educated well enough. And he's not, he he would say he's not that eloquent of a speaker to, to grab the ears of people. He looks at Christians and he gets the sense that, that they're no different than anybody else because they claim to have something, but it never shows up in their lives in any way. He, he looks at them and he, he thinks that, that you know, they don't have any clout in the community. They, they look at the political landscape and they have a twisted idea about what that should look like. And he says they don't have the money like a money mogul to move mountains. And so, although he didn't come right out and say it, he doesn't see Christ's followers as having any great wisdom in life issues. And that many of people who claim to be Christians are foolish. 
Here's a little interesting thought about wise people versus foolish people. The difference between a wise person and a fool is not about position. There's plenty of business leaders, pastors, politicians who are fools. On the other hand, I've met baristas, administrative assistants, and custodians who are wise. The difference between a fool and a wise person is not intelligence. I know fools who have master's degrees or PhDs. Some of them teach at universities that have written books. But on the other hand, I know wise people that have never graduated from high school. And ones we would say they're wise beyond their years. They're young. Being a wise person versus a fool, being wise doesn't have anything to do with talent. I know a lot of people who are successful entrepreneurs. There are worship leaders that I've met. There are people that, that are, have personalities and great TV programs that are fools. And yet, on the other hand, there are people who have average talent and make a meager income who are absolutely wise. You know, King Solomon said that there's a, uh, one major thing that differentiates a wise person from a fool. And here's what it is, so listen up. How he or she, received, how he or she receives instruction and correction. That's the difference between a wise person and a fool. A wise person listens without being defensive, accepts responsibility without blame, makes changes without delay. And if you're dealing with a wise person, talking is helpful. They soak up feedback and they use it to adjust their lives to be better. You can give them input and it's truly going to make a difference in their lives. If you're dealing with a fool, however, talking is a waste of your time. They resist change. The problem is never in the room. It's always out there somewhere, something that you can neither access or address. I've always wondered why I've had these conversations that seem to go nowhere, and they're frustrating, and they're confusing. But now I know. This is... This inevitably happens when you're talking with a fool. By the way, this doesn't mean that you give up on the fool. It means you have to use a different strategy. And that different strategy includes this. Stop talking to them. The Bible says that's throwing pearls before a swine. Provide limits for them. And then give consequences. In Paul's letter to the church, he's now going to address some of those people who thought that they were really wise because they claimed allegiance with people who were off in one field or another. They, they thought that they had bought into the idea that being wise was, as the world sees it, as having a power group or aligning yourself with someone of notability. And that's what kind of sets you apart. So as we read from chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians 26 through 31. Let's just make very sure that it's very clear what kind of people God calls to himself. Paul's addressing this to Christ's followers in Corinth, but it can apply to us as well today. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the wisdom of the world versus the inscrutable, marvelous wisdom of God. These believers who were living in ancient Corinth were exalting the wisdom of the world. The Greek custom of 
philosophizing about everything had penetrated the church and they were dividing into various factions, following certain men, quarreling, boasting, dividing, glorifying in men's ability and men's power, men's insight and men's wisdom. And so as we look at verse 26, Paul's going to counterpunch that whole thing. So let's read it. For consider your calling, brothers, and I'll stop right there. What he's wanting you to do is to think back about how you came into relationship with Christ. That's what consider means. It means to think back, to go over it, to to mull in your mind what was the process in which you came into relationship with Jesus. And he calls them brothers and sisters, by the way, because he's talking to them out of a, a heart of affection. He wants them to know that he loves them deeply as he brings this to them. And so he's saying, consider that you came, where you came from. Remember, it was God calling you, not you finding God. And second of all, we're all brothers and sisters. So we're all in this together. So let's continue on. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So let's just kind of break this down and walk through it. Because what he's really saying is, first of all, they are not the academically elite. There were, they were not wise according to worldly standards. There were some in the church that were from the educated class in Corinth, but most of the people in the church were uneducated. In the second phrase, Paul says that they were not political movers and shakers. The word translated mighty, powerful, influential was referring to the ruling class of the society. There were some in the church who were politically involved and connected to those in the city. But most of the church members in Corinth had no influence in city hall. The third phrase says, not many noble or well-born, literally of nobility. And again, there are some in the church from noble families of nobility. We know some of their names because they are written in the book of Acts. But by and large, most of the Corinthians' disciples were from the lower ranks of society and the slave class. So here's what he's really saying. What Paul's saying to these people is, you know what sort of people you were when God called you out of sinful darkness into the light of salvation. You know he didn't accept you as his child because you were brilliant, wealthy, powerful, because most of you weren't at all. And those of you whose lives were defined that way were saved in spite of those positions, not because of them. If anything, they were obstacles between you and God's grace. The reality is this, friends, that that position, wealth, and influence really can be an hindrance in keeping people from a sense of the need that leads to salvation. That's what happens. We we get to this place where we think we're something and we're nothing. You know, the great news about this passage we're looking at today is this. It includes all of us in here. There is no exclusion from what he's talking about from those of us who are sitting in here. Some of us are well-educated. Let me rephrase that. Some of you are (laughs) well-educated. Some of you have just life education, which is a great one. And it includes all of this. Some maybe came from a wealthy home. The rest of us have had to, to, you know, tough it out and, and work hard and diligent. Some of, I don't know if there's anybody here have like a king or queen in your family line. Uh, you're all a bunch of paupers. Oh, Phil, 
King Phil back there. <laughs> Prince Philip, thank you for showing up today. You know, in Matthew 11, it records a time when Jesus was preaching to the multitudes. And in the middle of the sermon, he stopped and prayed. I should do that probably more often. In his prayer, it was much more benef- it was as much of a benefit for the people listening as it was an offering to his Father in heaven. Here's what it says in verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He wanted them to understand that God desired only their faith, nothing more. I think it was also kind of a subtle warning that the wise and the intelligent people are at a disadvantage as far as it goes with spiritual understanding. It's not that they can't accept or believe. The problem is is that pride and dependence on their own accomplishments and abilities can keep them from the kingdom of heaven. A sense of weakness and inadequacy is the attitude through which God's strength is made obvious. You know, I'm not... So at my age, when you take a look back, happy birthday to me, by the way. Happy birthday to me. You get to a certain point in your life where you're, you are looking forward, but you realize that the, the, the gaze forward is a lot shorter than the one you just came from. And as you turn around and you start to look back over your life, the question inevitably that you will be asking yourself is have I made a difference in this world? Have I left a mark here on this planet? Has God done something through me that is going to make a difference in the lives of people? And sometimes when you look backwards, you go like, I'm not leaving much of a legacy. And I don't have that much time left in my life to make my mark. And and yet... What God does is we look at verses 27 through 28 is just incredible because it says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. We should all be going, woo, because he just described all of us. You know, you don't have to hide anymore. Come out in the light. Go like, hey, I'm not that smart. But God can use me. I'm not that strong. But God can use me. I'm not that wealthy. I don't have a lot of money. But what the money I do have, I give it to God. And guess what he's going to do with it? He's going to use it. So come out of the the dark. You know, I wanted to say come out of the closet. But, uh, you know... The implications behind that are... So I'm not going to say that, but just come out of the dark. Step into the light of Jesus. The fact that the early church was made up of poor people having very little social standing was offensive to the culture of the day. In um, 178 AD, a pagan Roman philosopher named Celis wrote these sarcastic words about Christians. Let no cultured person draw near. None wise, none sensible, for all these things were counted as evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. 
We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium around the swamp or worms convening in mud. That's Christians. And you know what? That was the view of Christians in the first century. They really were despised and looked down upon. And, and the crazy part is, is that because of the simplistic simplicity of the gospel and the humility of faithful believers, it's still incomprehensible to this world today. We're looked down upon. We're less. That's okay. Because you know what? My king's greater than any of those dudes, and they are going to be in for big trouble one day. Now, here's the, here's the good news. It doesn't mean that God doesn't often use people of status and stature. He does. He does that. But he does it only, remarkably enough, when they've learned that their usefulness does not derive from their position or their ability, but rather from the presence of Christ in their lives. Don't you find it a little bit strange that we think so highly of worldly wisdom and God thinks so little of it? In Luke 16, Jesus said this. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's what Jesus said. And what Paul's doing is seems to flow right from that fact. God works in different ways and what men put great stock in and emphasize as so necessary is often set aside totally by God. It's an abomination in his sight. A great preacher from London named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. We Christians often quote from Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And yet in practice, we seem to rely on the mighty dollar and the power of the press and advertising. We seem to think that our influence will depend on our technique and the program we can put forward and that it will be the, be the, the numbers, the largeness, the bigness that would prove effective. We've seemed to have forgotten that God has done most of his deeds in the church throughout history by remnants of people. We seem to have forgotten the great story of Gideon, for instance, and how God insisted on reducing 32,000 men to 300 before he would make use of them. We have become fascinated by the idea of bigness, and we are quite convinced that if we only stage, yes, that's the word, stage something really big before the world, we will shake it and produce a mighty religious awakening. That seems to be the modern conception of authority. But unfortunately, still true today, it seems to be the philosophy of the church, which is to seek first the grant for faith-based groups and all these things will be added to you. We find people all over the place who seem to think that we have to have money in order to do God's work and that, and that nothing can happen unless you get the money first. And they say something like, well, if we could only get enough money, then we could begin a great ministry. And it seems that that's absolutely the reverse of the whole position of what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches that, that you don't begin with money, you begin with ministry. 
Anybody can be a minister of God. That's the glory of the church because God has put all into ministry. If you begin to do what God wants you to do right where you are, God begins to work through you. All the money that is necessary to cause that ministry to grow is available because money follows ministry, not the other way around. And yet, how far we seem to have drifted from this. I think God delights in every generation to prove again by some unusual demonstration of this great principle that Paul declares. God deliberately chooses the weak, the obscure, the and use them in great power to remind us that it's not status, prestige, bigness, or money that makes ministry for God effective. It's God. The psalmist seemed to have had a great understanding about how God works through small things and how he displays his glory. Tyson read that passage from Proverbs or from Psalms chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 through 4. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens and I look at the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is it that you... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God in all of his greatness, all of his splendor will take the smallest things on this planet, our kids, little kids and youngsters and do something that the greatest of minds and oratory could never accomplish. And that's to break into the heart of cold hearted people. I've seen more children bring people to Christ than I have ever done in my entire life. They are so gifted at saying, Jesus loves me. He wants to love you too, but you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell. You need Jesus. And the people go like, I'm sorry. I want Jesus. It's amazing. Now God does this again and again to remind us that though he made the human mind, and he encourages us to use it, to search for wisdom and knowledge. When it comes to the use of this knowledge, there's only one place we can learn to use it rightly, and that is in relationship with Jesus. It is out of wisdom and understanding of the revelation of God. Why does God do this? Why does God seem to be so against the wisdom of the world, as Paul calls it? Is he jealous of man? Is he kind of God who loves to put people down? Paul says that God seeks deliberately to shame the wise and the strong to bring nothing uh, to to bring to nothing things that are. Why does he do that? Because it sounds like he's being vindictive. And that maybe God is envious. Well, he gives the answer in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. (laughs) Now, why is God against human boasting? We're all experts at it. We do it really well, but God does not like it. Why? Well, surely the reason is not that he's jealous of us. He's simply uh, trying to, and he's not simply trying to put anyone down. The answer is that the human boasting is always based on an illusion. 
And God is a realist. Those who boast in themselves or in their abilities are always thinking they have some power in themselves that will make them succeed. And God knows that that's a lie. They're deceiving themselves and they're living in a fantasy world. The kindest thing God can do is to find a way to puncture the sinful pride, collapse the platform of prestige, shatter the illusion of self-sufficiency. That's what he does. And he does it by using obscure and weak things that are regarded oftentimes as foolish. I recently read an article by a businessman who recounted his own experience in this regard. And he learned the painful way. Here's what he says. It's my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to feel I am the master of my fate. I run my own life. I call my own shots. I go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. I can't ultimately rely on myself. I am dependent on God for for my very next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I am anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It's not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I'm pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. That's his thoughts. And I say amen to that. That's right in line with what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. God set aside the wisdom and the pride and the boasting of man because it is based on an illusion of fantasy that men have in themselves the power to act. Paul sets forth for us another beautiful passage, the secret to true wisdom. And you want to know what it is? It is in the ability to recognize that though you may have little of what the world thinks it takes, if you have Jesus, you have learned to count on his power moment by moment. You have the secret to true success. Now, many Christ followers know that in their minds. They know it up here in their head, but it's never transferred that 18 inches to their heart. And when the moment comes for action, they act like everybody else. The whole purpose of the Bible is to teach us to walk in a different way, to live by a different power, and to do it with respect to everything we do. The simplest tasks are to be done in the power of Christ. Look what Paul says in verses 30 to 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, who because, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's an interesting structure in the Greek sentence here. What Paul is saying is he, God, is the source of your life in Christ, whom God made to be your wisdom, even our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. In other words, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, are the explanation of what wisdom involves. They are, they are all contained in that one word, wisdom. So what is wisdom? Well, knowledge is the discovery of truth, but wisdom is the right use of truth, and it is always takes three basic elements to be wise. First, there must be a true perception of what it is, meaning 
an understanding of the nature of reality. When you face a situation, for instance, in your home, if you're going to be wise about how you're going to handle that situation, you have to know what are the forces that are at work, what is happening, who is involved, and what's driving this thing. One of the fundamental bases of wisdom is the ability to distinguish the true from the false and to have a fundamental concept of the nature of reality. The second is there must also be true evaluation of worth. Sometimes what we do is we take the trivial, most trivial things uh, of our life and we make them the most monumental thing. Have you ever gotten into that kind of a discussion with somebody over something that wasn't really that important, but you're on both sides of the thing and you start to get into this argument and this fight and the next thing you know, you're yelling at each other and you're raising your voice and you're getting nose to nose and your buddy clench your fist when all of a sudden you realize, what are we fighting over? It was nothing. It was trivial. And we made a, a mountain out of something very trivial. We have to know what something is worth. You got to know what you're going to die on the hill for. And there's a lot of trivial stuff that you're fighting over that is just not worth it. And when you do that, you're not being wise. You're being foolish. Here's the thing. We're all guilty of that. But to act wise, you must be able to understand and put things in perspective and keep them where they are so that they do not get out of focus. The third element of wisdom is the ability to blend two essential two essentials of human life together, truth and love. And together in that harmonious balance, they keep everything right on track. You have to be honest and patient. You have to be both frank and gracious. That is what you see so beautifully about Jesus. He was... He, How honest was he? I mean, he was frank, and yet he was always gracious with the touch that was sensitive to the person with whom he spoke, to the need of that person's life in their heart. Here it is. Listen to this. Speaking the truth in love, that is the sign of wisdom. Now, that's what Christ has come to teach us how we're to live. The mark of someone who is growing in Christ is that he or she is becoming able to exercise that kind of wisdom and it begins, as the Apostle Paul tells us here, with the gift of righteousness. Christ made made unto us righteousness. And as we have been learning, as we've been going through the Bible, righteousness is really what we... What we mean when we use the word worth, a loving, warm acceptance in the eyes of God. You have worth because of the righteousness of Christ. You have value to God because of what Christ did for you. It's a position to which we're able to return whenever we're threatened or we're guilty or we're afraid a position from which we can handle pressure. If you feel worthless, you cannot handle life. You lose the ability to function. You must have a sense of worth, of confidence, of acceptance, a sense of being, of significance and value. The world says that you've got to earn that. (laughs) But God says it's a free gift and all you have to do is step up and take it. 
Take it, and I'll empower you to live in it. Righteousness. Then wisdom moves into the process that Paul calls sanctification. Now, that is the daily manifestation of a Christ-like character becoming more and more visible in your life. The outward product of the inward righteousness, sanctification, is the outward sign of what God is doing on the inward person. We find ourselves manifesting this character of Jesus more and more as we learn to handle life according to the way God teaches us. We will become more loving, more patient, more understanding, more insightful, more courageous. We are all in process. No one's made it yet, but we're on the way. And finally, it results in redemption. Redemption is the restoration of usefulness of something that has been rendered totally useless. Now, let me ask a question. Anybody here ever pawn anything? Phil has his king uncle. I've never pawned anything. But I did talk to Al because he used to own a pawn shop. And what he says is when somebody comes in and they bring something they want a pawn, you don't give them full value of what the item is that they're bringing in. You give them a ver- very small amount of what it's worth, like a quarter or less. Because what you're, what you're basically doing is you're loaning money to them on this item here. And what you want to do is give them so little money that they want to come back and get that thing of greater value. But here's the thing. While that item, whatever it is, has been pawned at the pawn shop, sits on the shelf or in the window and collects dust, it is absolutely useless. It doesn't do anything. It has no value. It just sits there and collects dust, and it's useless. And when the person who pawned it comes in and redeems that item, puts the ticket out, pays for it, redeems it, takes it back, it then becomes useful for what it was intended to do. And that's what redemption is to us. God is redeeming us. We have been put on the shelf because we are useless, spiritually speaking. We have no way of of doing anything useful. And so Jesus redeems us. He purchased us. And now he makes us useful. And that's his wisdom. The wisdom of God in this world is far different than the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is that people will use us for a little while, then they'll discard us and we'll be useless to them. But God's wisdom is is such that the process of life, he is gradually restoring us and making us useful, redeeming us. He does it through the wonderful gift of righteousness, the process of sanctification. How much more superior is God's wisdom than the wisdom of man? That's why Paul concludes with these words. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is the Lord who can change you, not you. It is not the the course you take or the programs you follow. Though these may be helpful instruments, it is God who changes and God who teaches We are all in his hands, and that is what's happening to us. So with the Apostle Paul, we bow in wonder at the wisdom of God that is so different from the wisdom of man. Amen? Here's the little bottom line for us today. We've been fed a bill of goods that's not true. 
that you have to be important, that you have to be significant, that you have to be uh, why or uh, highly educated, that you have to have power, you have to have prestige. You have to have all of that in order to be somebody. But what, what Paul reveals to us here is that we are, we are all weak. We, we don't carry great influence. We uh, are not wealthy beyond means. We're, we're just foolish. And so today, Jesus just says, man, join the crowd. This is, this is the, the group of fools. Amen? I mean, we are. Because what we believe and how we live and the way we act reflects the glory of God. And to so many people, us gathering on a Sunday morning like this to worship, to hear the word preached to us, to let it soak into our hearts, to change our lives, absolutely looks like foolishness. You could be out hunting. You could be out fishing. You could, man, you could go watch paint dry and it would be better than doing this. And God's calling us out. He's calling us out of the darkness into the light. He's calling us out from from the wisdom of this world that makes us really insignificant and gives us our significance through Jesus Christ, that we are totally 100% significant with God and there is nobody else we need to be significant to other than God. So I have a, some questions to consider this morning. All right, so you should take the first one, you should take the second one, and then we'll go back and forth because they, they don't get them. All right. <laughs> All right. How has worldly wisdom influenced my thinking and actions? Is my pride leading me to be independent of God, appealing to the feeling that I am the master of my fate, I run my own life, I call my own own shots, and I can go it alone? If so, what are the steps I must take to surrender my life to God? How does my life reflect being dependent on God? How can I embrace the wisdom of God so that I find my worth in Christ, manifest Christ's character to those around me, and restore my life to the usefulness God intended it to be? That's what God's calling us to do. It's not good enough to hear the word. You need to think about it. You may have some other questions that the Spirit of God laid on your heart. They're probably better than the ones I came up with anyway. But ponder, think about it, then act on it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear, but be also doers of the word. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have chosen, I thank you, that you have chosen me because I am not strong. I am not highly educated. I'm weak. I am a fool, but you take fools like me and you use them not for their glory, but for your glory. I thank you that you've called all of us out of the darkness of sin into the light of wisdom through redemption, through sanctification, through righteousness of Christ, that we can live different, that we can be different, and that we can act different. And it all comes down to the fact, Jesus, that you've the one that provided it for us. We don't have to do anything but step into it and live it as you have called us to do, to follow your instruction book like you gave us. And through that, we might become the sons and daughters who reflect the glory of the king in our lives. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.